Good evening, everybody. Um, you're all sort of kind of Scott of the Antarctic kind of feeling you've all got. Um, I know that those of you from places like Canada and Sweden wonder what all the fuss is about, but for, for true Brits and Londoners like myself, we all realise this is a badge of courage even to be here tonight. <laughs> My name's Charlie Beckett. I'm the director of POLIS, which is the media think tank uh, here at the London School of Economics. Um, I'm really, really pleased to... to um, be able to chair tonight's uh, talk from Clay Shirky. Uh, he's somebody who um, has been uh, very much part of our thinking over at uh, Polis, where we've been looking at uh, media change. And beyond really, you know, what I do, which is a, a journalism, uh, beyond journalism and how it uh, impacts on society. And uh, I was thinking about the, the, the snow today uh, and how this was the biggest snowfall uh, since 1991. And I was thinking about what I was doing back in 1991, which was a quaint profession called filmmaking at the BBC. And of course, that was only a, a year after Berners-Lee uh, had actually invented you know, the World Wide Web. And boy, have, have things changed, if only in weather reporting. Um, the BBC uh, said yesterday that they got 35,000 separate people contacting them, offering uh, images, stills images, video, from their experience of, of the weather in London yesterday. And indeed, of course, you know, a lot of us were uh, working at home, thanks to the internet and email, and uh, certainly my children were organizing uh, snowball fights on Facebook. Um, so things have changed extraordinarily. Um, it's now, as we were just saying, talking in the green room just before, we were saying really the debate when I came to the LSE a couple of years ago was kind of, is new media a good thing? Is the internet a good thing or a bad thing? And well, it's now very much a question of what you can do with it. And tonight we've got somebody who uh, certainly has views and a lot of expertise. Uh, one of the most uh, outstanding books on media and communications, Here Comes Everybody, published last year. And the uh, paperback will be available for sale tonight uh, uh, and signing after tonight's talk. But. Um, without any further ado, let's get over to Clay Shirky and hear what he's got to say. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to do a, uh, a slightly more speculative talk uh, than I usually do, um, both because once the paperback has come out, there's a, a sort of a platform for talking about the next, uh, next bits of change, but also because there's so much happening in a UK context, and I mean just in the last week, uh, between Lord Carter's report, uh, uh, Tom Watson's report, uh, the, the success of the My Society campaign uh, to get Labor to agree to release ministers' expenses, the potential of wildcat strikes in Sellafield, the, the number of examples there are uh, of collective action uh, has led me to want to do a talk uh, ending, ending in a kind of open-ended way about the the question we all face now about integrating this stuff into a political context. Um, uh, it starts, uh, this for me starts with the book, uh, Here Comes Everybody. Um, I'm going to uh, displease uh, the representative of Penguin here tonight by saving you uh, the cost of buying it by giving you the five word precy, and then you won't have to read it. Uh, group action just got easier. That is the core, uh, the core idea of the book. Uh, we have a set of tools internet, mobile phones, applications built on top of them that lower the transaction costs, which is to say the hassle factor of letting groups of people find each other, come together, share, collaborate, take collective action. 
And, and those transformations, uh, which started, I mean, to the, to the reference to Berners-Lee, they started in the techie community, but they have spread, piggybacking with the internet, and, and relying on native so, human social desires to coordinate with one another, uh, to start touching every aspect of society. So let me, let me start uh, with an example. Let me start by telling a story that I think illustrates some of what's happening. Last, uh, I guess two springs ago, uh, beginning of 2007, HSBC, the bank, went around recruiting UK students and recent, recent graduates uh, with the promise of penalty-free checking. Now, either if you are in college or you can remember college, you remember why penalty-free checking is a good deal. You run up an overdraft, you have to pay the money back, but they don't charge you any extra, right? So this is a very popular offer. HSBC gets thousands, uh, thousands of sign-ups. And then over the summer, after the students are spread to the four winds, backpacking around or doing their summer jobs or whatever, uh, HSBC says, oh, did, did we say penalty-free? Um, we have kind of changed our minds about that. We'd actually like to charge you 140 pounds every time you run up an overdraft. Would that be okay with you? Uh, and they knew, right, they knew they could do this during the summer uh, because they had two advantages uh, over the students, over the group, of, the group of students that signed up for these accounts. The first advantage is information, right? It's just, it's a hassle to go through all the steps of taking your money out of bank A and putting all of your money into bank B. So HSBC could be relatively confident that even if there were some students who were angry enough uh, to try and do this, just, just the, the informational difficulties were going to defeat them. So if they lost some customers, they weren't going to lose that many. And the second advantage they had, of course, was the coordination advantage. HSBC is a managed organization. When the CEO says, this is our strategy, everybody gets the memo, everybody works in the same way. Students, a little disorganized at the best of times, uh, in the summer, right, are hopelessly, are hopelessly spread out. What HSBC had not bargained on was Facebook. Right? A guy named Wes Streeting up at, up at Cambridge puts up a page on Facebook that says, stop the great HSBC rip. And in the manner of social networks everywhere, once he does this, he contacts his friends and they join. And in the news feed of their friends shows up this thing saying, your friend just joined a group called Stop the Great HSBC Ripoff. And more people joined, and so more, more news went out, so more people joined and more news went out. Thousands of people joined this. First thing that happened right, is when someone figured out how to get your money out of HSBC and into Barclays, they documented the process and started sharing it with each other. Bye-bye information advantage, right? Because in an environment like this, once one person gets something right anywhere, if they take the step of documenting it, everybody can get that same thing right everywhere. So that spreads, and HBC loses one of its advantages. And the next thing that happens is the students just start having online protests, right? They, they start complaining in public in various forums. The mainstream press picks this up. This drives more people to Facebook, which drives more protests. And you can see where that feedback loop is going. And then the student said, you know, we're all going to be back in September. Why don't we all just go down to the city and we'll have a real world protest, right? We'll, we'll march around in front of HSBC's actual headquarters. And that protest never happened. Uh, and it didn't happen because by that time HSBC said, okay, okay, you know, we get it. Uh, and they sent their PR person out to say to the press, well, obviously we're a customer service organization. Right? We would never want to do anything if we'd known it was going to make people unhappy. Right? 
if you if you think right, you may have a career in PR in, in front of you, stand in front of a mirror and see if you can say that with a straight face. If you can, right, the PR could be for you. Uh, the reason that HSBC back then wasn't that people were unhappy. They would they 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 could easily have guessed that going from charging someone no pounds to 140 pounds was going to be a little bit of a bummer. Right? The reason HSBC back then is that the students were unhappy and coordinated. Right? The assumption that it was going to take a high degree of managerial culture and structure to contest HSBC's unilateral change of the rules vanished uh, in this example. And this kind of thing is happening over and over. The transaction cost, the difficulty of getting groups of people together, has moved from being something that has to be instantiated in an organization, right? Here's the boss, and here are the sub-bosses, and here are the bylaws, to being something that's instantiated in the platform. What HSBC discovered is that Facebook takes a lot of the difficulty of coordinating institutions one organization at a time, and embeds it in a set of tools so that anybody who can get the social interest in a particular idea, can call those people together and not just give them information the way traditional media does. They can actually give them a platform for action. When the Telegraph wrote about this story, all they were able to say was, HSBC is reneging on the deal. Thought you'd like to know. What they were able to do on Facebook is say, HSBC is reneging on the deal. Thought you'd like to know. Here's something you could do about it please join us. And that second set of steps, the ability to use the information not just, not just as a delivery service, here's something you should know, but the ability to use media as a site of coordination as well, has changed the dynamic around social groups. Now I've been, I've been looking at online networks, <coughs> social action in one way or another for 15 years. And in that time, here are two things I've become absolutely convinced of. Fast is different than slow, and large is different than small. Now that seems pretty trivial, uh, and yet you'd be surprised at the number of people who think, if I understand a small, slow network, right, I can just extrapolate and I will be able to understand what the future is. But in fact, one of, the, one of the points I made in the book, and the hardcover came out this time last year, was that as the network speeds up, right, as we have access to more and more, more tools that give us real-time access to them, and as the network grows in size, both in terms of number of users, but also willingness of those users to engage in social action, we're going to start to see new kinds of effects. You can't just extrapolate from small and slow to understand the dynamics of fast and long. So between the hardcover and now, I found a story that, that is, is in the afterword of the book. It's a, it's, a, it's a rewritten chapter of the book to reflect this change. And here's the story. May 12th of 2008, the Sichuan province of China suffered a 7.9 magnitude quake. And it, it isn't just that this quake was reported on social media. It was reported on social media as it was happening. People were SMSing one another saying, my God, the ground is shaking. They were taking out camera phones and filming, taking photos and filming the earthquake as it was happening. They were uploading it to QQ, which is China's largest internet service. They were uploading it to Twitter, which is a service for syndicating small messages among large groups. And 
there was never, there was literally not one second in which the Chinese government had the option of deciding whether or not to report that earthquake. The last time they had had an earthquake of that magnitude, it had taken them three months to even admit that it had happened. This is in the 1970s. Fast forward to last year, there's, there's zero chance of denying that this earthquake is going on because by the time the officials learn of it, the news is already out. Now it's outspread on communications networks under sea, under sea cables. But in addition to the fiber optic cables connecting China to the rest of the world, there are also social cables. Information doesn't just flow where it can flow. It flows where people want it. Every time a Chinese graduate student comes to a university outside China and makes friends and contacts and moves home, every time a national from someplace outside China moves to a Chinese office, that social cable is strengthened. And so part of the story of the news of the earthquake getting out was that there were these tools in people's hands and these wires and, and, and satellites across which the message could flow. But part of the story of it getting out is that enough people cared about each other across the national divide, that the news flowed not where traditional media was operating, but where individual concern, oh, I have a friend, I know a friend who works in the bank in Shanghai, I hope their family is all right, I'm going to write them an email, I'm going to send them a text message. And it, it, it rocketed around. Uh, people were sharing photos, um, they, were, they, were on, they were building sites to accept donations within hours. Right? There were sites up that were collecting donations, right? the canonical donation book. Uh, and, and the amount of concern right, that moved over the network, it wasn't just information. Right? It was deep emotional connection. I hope you're all right. Is there anything I can do to help? Here's where the donations go. Here's what you can do. Right? When you looked at uh, the, the, the most active URLs on Twitter on this short messaging service, except for the kittens on our treadmill, Right. <laughs> Canonical. You can't put up an example without kittens on a credit card. Uh, everything else here right, is about the earthquake. Right. And one of the common patterns, you will have seen this sadly uh, on the 7th of July in 2005, is that these tools go from being, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I like that the kids are doing that, or I don't like that the kids are doing that, depending on, on who, the, who the adult is talking, to this is a critical tool that we must have. But that moment happens in a crisis. Right? The idea on the, on the day of the 7-7 bombings, the idea that the first photos of that would come not from photojournalists, but from people in the underground tunnels with camera phones, right, would have been speculative. Right? Everyone knew that cameras had phones. Everyone knew that Flickr and photo sharing services existed. And on that day, all of a sudden, that became a normal pattern. On the day of the Indian Ocean tsunami, it became a normal pattern for a Wikipedia page to go up within minutes of a disaster that starts being the place where the names of the missing and dead can be coordinated because there are multiple global sources and there's no one place to look until Wikipedia comes along. And now there is one place to look. And that page gets created after every disaster and within 60 minutes. <coughs> so the new pattern that's just showing up is Twitter. right? And the people are, are checking official sources. They're building their own maps. Uh, they're following. They're following and syndicating traditional news cases, uh, news news agencies, as with the BBC. And the uh, the amount of back and forth has generated this kind of 
penumbra of not just information, but, but again, the, a site of action, right? places where people can go. So this is a really dramatic change, particularly in a country uh, that has previously been quite locked down and quite controlling. Yeah, part of this, again, the fact that the, the Chinese government didn't have the choice. They couldn't, they couldn't even call a meeting to decide whether or not to report the claim because it was already. And then a couple of days later, this happens. Um, China has a one-child per family policy, uh, famously to control uh, population growth so that they don't suffer uh, Malthusian uh, population growth. But the result of the one-child policy is that any family that loses a single child is now childless. And if the parents are past childbearing age, that's it. And the earthquake happened during a school day. 7,000 classrooms collapsed. And the mourning among the parents of these children who were childless started to turn not to the earthquake, but to the buildings, because they hadn't been built to code. They knew, right? The government of Sichuan knew that they were in an earthquake zone. But the local officials had taken bribes from the construction <coughs> agencies to be able to build the buildings faster. Right? And as a result, those buildings not up to code had collapsed and killed an extraordinary and you now have in China, for the first time, a radicalized population that isn't radicalized through management, right, or through membership in a particular group, as with the Falun Gong. You just have a group of people who share the same sense that something has gone wrong and are looking for an out. And these are the same people who are taking and syndicating this user-generated media. So all of a sudden, the Chinese also can't control the story of the corrupt officials who took the bribes to let the school buildings be built to substandard construction. And the news moves out, not over the Xinhua News Agency, it moves out over QQ, it moves out over Twitter, it moves out over all of the technological and social cables that already exist. And you get this, right? You get a local administrator literally prostrating himself on the street in front of demonstrators, begging for forgiveness. This, needless to say, does not go on long. And the Chinese government, a little over a month after the earthquake, cracks down. No official reporting. No one is allowed to visit a school building. No one is allowed with a camera. Right? Too, too much information is gotten. What happens in this short-term case, we don't yet know. I mean, this, the, both the, the rounding up and, and jailing of people who are protesting and the grief of the parents are still both very live issues now. So this is not a story that's ending. But what is clear is that the Chinese government's way of managing media, which is to build what is, what is almost universally called the Great Firewall of China, which is uh, a set of uh, practices, both machine and human, for filtering inbound media. The Great Firewall of China has kept the Chinese government relatively safe from activist information getting into the country, because if they're able to keep it tamped down about 90%, it never becomes a source of popular discussion. But like the Maginot Line, they've got the wrong defense for the war they're fighting, because all of their filters are facing the wrong way. They got nothing. They got nothing filtering outbound media from their own citizens. A billion people. That's a filtering problem that's several orders of magnitude 
larger than the filtering problem they set themselves up. And when their own people are reporting corruption from inside the country and sending it out, using the same tools that the Chinese government is relying on as an economic engine for progress and growth, it's a very different class of problem than the one they face. So this, this is an example of fast is different than slow, large is different than small. Because this is something which potentially adds up to global ramifications. Again, whether or not it's this, uh, it's this crisis, I don't know. Uh, but it is clearly something that is not hasn't been planned for and is going to require dramatic a dramatic shift in one way or another in that government. So with that uh, with that set of observations, essentially, this stuff is not only real. Uh, but it is starting to affect an increasing number of increasingly important situations in an increasing number of ways by an increasing number of people. Um, I want to turn my attention uh, to a couple of stories about Barack Obama because you know that just happened and I'm American and we're still getting used to it. Um, because the Obama campaign, in a way, has been the thing that convinces people that this stuff is going to matter. When the book came out a year ago, I went around and I would often have to spend a few minutes just defending the idea that maybe, just maybe, this wasn't going to be just geeks and techies doing this. That it was going to spread out and have some kind of general effect on society. And for the first three months, there was, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe not. There was always a few people like, shut up, shut up, it's not going to happen. And then the Obama campaign. And then I stopped having to do that part of the talk at all. Because we generally started from, okay, you know, get it. How crazy is this? What's, what's going to happen? And I want, the first story I want to tell about Obama is the story of user-created media. And Obama's ability to catalyze and take advantage of user-created media, because this is new. This is new in the political landscape. And he touches the question that I think we're going to start facing, if not now, then very soon, how do we integrate this stuff into democratic practice? Because it's not, for reasons we're talking about, it's not immediately. This is still from a video by Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, the, the, uh, the video is called uh, Yes We Can. Everything about Barack Obama is called Yes We Can. So this video is also called Yes We Can. Uh, and it was scored by Will I Am, two words taken from, uh, from an Obama speech, and, and also sung by other people in a vocal overlay with Obama. Uh, it has been seen, I don't know if you can see this one, it has been seen nearly 16 million times by uh, And it came out at the very beginning of the announcement, the beginning of 2007, uh, when the candidates were just announcing their presence, uh, their presence as potential Democratic contenders. And the effect of this video in that season was to make Obama seem plausible. Which is which? Which was itself an extraordinary thing. Uh, as I was, as I was saying to Prina earlier, my, my friend from Penguin who's here fuming because I just blew the book sale. Uh, there was, you couldn't have found a bookie in 2006 who would have taken your money to bet on a black president in the United States. Right? It just it was it was so widely understood to be potentially a desirable thing for the good of the nation in some future post-racial state but zero chance of it happening up, to the point where the mainstream media wouldn't cover the possibility seriously lest they look either like shills or fools. And then along comes this. 
and the name recognition and the awareness and the capability uh, of individual voters to not only think that this was possible, to, but to convince one another this is possible, was a huge, huge And the critical thing about this, right, is that the Obama campaign didn't commission it. They didn't ask for it. Will I Am didn't ask for any help. He didn't ask for any permission. Right? It was it was parallel development. There were no contracts that went between the two. Right? And yet, the media was perfectly shaped to the campaign. And that happened because Obama is, I think, the first platform candidate we've seen, which is to say the first candidate that's regarded their job as not just standing up and saying, my fellow Americans, this is what I stand for, and so forth and so on, standard political rhetoric since, since time immemorial, but also saying, if you want to take this message to your friends, these are the things you have to say. These are the things that I believe in or that I stand for. Right? And it was very easy to imagine making media for Obama because you just knew what it should look and sound and feel like. It was not easy to do that for his opponent, which ended up being John McCain in the Republican camp, in part because McCain's message changed very quickly, but also in part because the McCain campaign, McCain was not a platform campaign. Uh, McCain's idea of internet outreach was, here are some comments that if you support McCain, you may want to cut and paste these onto, onto these blogs we've been hearing so much about. Right? to tell the Democrats why they should vote for McCain. Right? And they just had a list of prefab comments because, God forbid, anybody write their own stuff. <laughs> and yet, writing your own stuff turned out to be a huge boon for Obama, precisely because they could do it in this sort of low coordination. Now, this wasn't the only media, of course. There was an enormous amount of, of, of media created for Obama. Um, here's another example from August of last year. So now we are at the height, right? August of 2008, this is the height of the general campaign. Obama versus McCain, Obama versus McCain. Uh, months before the campaign, uh, months, just a few months before the election, and as things are really hotting up. Um, a woman in Venice, California, uh, a singing teacher, writes a song uh, for Obama, and she gathers a group of students, her students together, um, buys them all, as you can see, identical t-shirts, teaches them this song, uh, this sort of sweet song, and then she films herself conducting themselves, or her, herself conducting them singing. Uh, because it's Venice, California, right, there's a lot of camera people you can get to come over on a weekend. So it's a three camera shoot with steady cam, right? This, this, looks, <laughs> this looks pretty good. So this video goes up, and it goes up on Sing, the Sing for Change site, which is the site they, they, they created for the purpose. And it is, as you can imagine from my description, a horror. It, it is the idea of children too young to vote singing words literally put in their mouths by an adult, right? To support a candidate with no thought going into that, it, the, the Republican blogosphere erupted. The Democrats were like, well, we think you're trying to help, but you know, could you take it down? <laughs> she took it down quickly, as you, as you might imagine. You can guess how that story plays out, right? Oh, I'm going to remove this from the internet, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you, yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> by that point, the Republicans have hold of it, and new versions start going up. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite, which I, I took the wrong screenshot because I didn't want didn't to uh, front run the joke, but my favorite is the uh, Pyongyang Remix edition, <laughs> in which the Obama song 
is running underneath alternate pictures of these kids and North Korean kids all singing in unison for their dear leader. Uh, and the, the remarkable thing about this is the asymmetry between these two examples, because Obama did not suffer as much for the Sing for Change as he benefited from the Yes We Can. Right? And why? It's because the American, at least, the, at, at least in, in the US, and I think this is spreading everywhere, the, the American public has acquired a degree of sophistication about social media. So they know that just because your name is on it doesn't mean you're responsible. Right? Five years ago, six years ago, the ACLU sued Meetup to prevent meetups from happening under the ACLU name because they were terrified that if it said ACLU, lawyers would come out. So there was a time when people worried about having their name on it. But by now, right, you've got this asymmetry where because the campaign is not coordinating or forcing this to happen, uh, they can benefit in some ways while avoiding the worst of the downside. Right? By sharing uh, in the manner of a platform rather than in the manner of an organization, uh, they can reap certain benefits and avoid certain pitfalls um, that can only be got at with the loss of control. Now, this is not, uh, you know, this is not a, a, a perfect solution. And in fact, one of the corollaries of the loss of control is the control's going somewhere. Right? If you give up some control, you're giving someone else some control over you. And we saw that happen. So Obama puts up the site, Organizing for America, MyBarackObama.com. Uh, and it is a social networking site in the model of Facebook, but, but hosted, hosted by and for Barack Obama, uh, but mainly designed to create an unsatisfying online experience. Right? Because if you have a satisfying online experience, it uses up the potential energy that could have gone into actually doing something worthwhile. Right? You'll sometimes see this on Facebook, right? These, these various groups that come by and ask you to join them, and they have the sort of feeling of, you know, shout outs for ending world hunger. Like, it's not really clear what joining the group does, but it leaves you with the residue of good feeling. Right? The Obama people understood this, and so they created this group to make it hard to have a fully satisfying experience online. You were supposed to be hosting parties or ringing doorbells or whatever, and it was quite successful in driving. But during the summer, uh, Obama announced that he was reversing himself on a particular is, uh, issue in constitutional law about what was regarded by, by some civil libertarians, and himself included, as unconstitutional spying by telecom companies on American citizens. And he had said in January, I would never sign, I would never sign anything that let the telecom companies off the hook if they have genuinely been spying uh, you know, on American Brits, it's okay, but but if you're spying on citizens, right? This 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 gets problematic. Uh, and so Obama announces very quietly, "Oh, you know, I'm going to reverse myself. I'm going to sign this." And so there's a group of people who said, "Look, if all you can do on the My Barack Obama side is create these groups, right? We're going to figure out a way to start a protest that just involves the creation and joining." And thus was President Obama. Please get FISA right. Vote no group. And the name of the group was their message. And the act of joining was the act of protest. And it started on the 26th of, uh, started on the 26th of June. And within two weeks, it had grown to 22,000 members, actually slightly less than two weeks. And they'd forced Obama to come out with a 
with the policy statement. Now, he stuck, he stuck to his position, and he clearly did it because it was the general campaign and the package, etc. He didn't please the civil libertarians, but what he did do is had to respond. He had to make it a bigger issue than it had been previously. And this is the other part of being a platform candidate, is once you are a platform candidate, you can be called to account by your own people. And you risk losing more face with them, as Obama risked doing here, when you enter that kind of relationship. So the purely utilitarian view of this stuff that sometimes travels under the name crowdsourcing, the idea that I can simply get unpaid minions to do my bidding, or low-paid minions to do my bidding, ignores the fact that very often what people are doing this for is intellectual, emotional, social satisfaction, not just some desire to come together and participate in a generic way. And you can't grab hold of this stuff in a real way without exposing yourself to some of this kind of internal criticism. So the question we have, and it's the last story I want to tell and the one I want to go to questions on, is given that this is happening just in a campaign, this looks like a people holding their leader to a set of promises, or at least a degree of accountability and public response. It's beneficial in a democratic context. So the question that floated around the U.S., and that I think is more general than just the U.S. context, is, is he going to govern like he politicked? Is he going to bring these tools, which he used to such good, put to such good use during the campaign, is he going to bring these tools into the running of his administration? And we got a potential answer with the launch during the transition period after the election, but before he took office, which takes a long time, with the site change.gov. It went up, in fact, the day after the election. Change.gov was essentially wisdom of crowds instantiated in a political context. The idea was, have your say, come by, tell us what we should be concentrating on as an administration. Other people would come by and vote these issues up, and through the democratic process we all know and love, the good stuff, the good stuff floats to the top. And this is even before he's taken office, we're already seeing it. So, number one issue, most important, most important issue facing the nation. Legalization of medical marijuana. You can imagine how that played in the media, right? We are banks, we're having a little trouble in the U.S., you may have read about that in the papers. We are in the middle of two wars. Middle is maybe optimistic. We are in two wars. The healthcare system is melting down. And what the people on change.gov have floated to the top is the idea of legalizing medical marijuana, which I think we could all get behind as a potential policy prescription, and yet it doesn't seem like the number one thing you'd want Obama working on his first day. So here's the shift, right, from whether or not, whether or not, whether or not this is going to happen, right? Not only is it going to happen, it's happening. It's happening now. The shift is, if this is a new force in democratic society, and it seems to be, how do we institute the right checks and balances? James Madison, our great political philosopher, wrote a series of documents called the Federalist Papers, 
arguing essentially that the first bargain under which the United States were organized uh, was junk and should be scrapped entirely, and it should be replaced with a second constitution, which is the one we, we, we now operate on. And he laid out the design principles for that. And the most remarkable thing he said in that entire set of documents, it's co-written with a couple of other people, but he'd done, he'd done most of them. Uh, the most remarkable thing he said in that entire set of documents was in Federal Papers number. He said, everybody complains about faction, but there's nothing you can do about it. Factionalism is the normal case. There's no <coughs> such thing as a special interest group because they're all special interest groups. Right? Anything that's a general interest, no one's going to disagree about. <coughs> and so what government is, in its, in its proper conception, is both the playing field and rules for factions to contend with. And the way that we have dealt with that, and, the way, I mean, and, and, and it's, a, it's a design pattern taken from the Magna Carta, among other, uh, among other documents, is to figure out who gets to counterbalance. And in the days of technical utopianism, um, of which I am, am now embarrassed in hindsight to say I was, I was a, a promulgator of, there was the idea that direct access of the people into the political process would somehow legitimately bypass the other checks and balances and be like mainlining democracy straight into the government's hands. Right. This is the result. Right. You get that. Right. And what you see from this is that this is another place where certain kinds of special interests can make their feelings known. But it is not the same as saying, Anything that's thrown to the top of change.gov is therefore has, has or should have priority in the, president, in the president's team. And so the problem we've got now isn't a problem of capability, it's a problem of legitimacy. Right. Under what circumstances would you take advice from people primarily coordinated on the internet and, and, and headed for political action? And under what circumstances would you ignore that? Because I think we can all say, on your first day in office, don't spend so much time on the marijuana thing. I, you know, Iraq, I know the economy, maybe marijuana next week. Right? But unless there is a principle by which you can say that, all you're really doing is saying, it's nice that you have this outlet, but we're not going to take it seriously. And then if you go the other extreme and say, right, you have right privileges to the president's calendar, right? you can't do that. And the only way we, we, when we're in situations where neither extreme solution works is to set up a set of checks and balances. And that's where I think the conversation is going. And back to my back to the point about the Sichuan quake. Since these tools get adopted, especially in crisis, times of crisis, I don't think any of us would have predicted this. I certainly did not, or I would have behaved, I would have behaved differently. But the global financial crisis we're in the middle of means that the speed and depth of the adoption of some of these tools is, I think, going to surprise. Because we're in a situation where none of the old things work. And so laying your hands on new things that seem to work in whatever way is now a very attractive proposition. And I think, although no one would have said 2009 is the year, I think this is the year where we're going to make some fairly momentous decisions about checks and balances in in the digital space. And with that all in, thank you very much. Uh, that's it, Clay. You can either continue walking.
some point. Okay, okay, that's great. I get to jump you. Through. Thanks very much. That um, uh, fascinating talk. With, um, while they're thinking about which question they want to ask you, um, I just sort of by summary, if you like, you seem to be saying, in a way, that there are um, limits uh, on the expectation that one can have that somehow this transformational technology can be uh, politically transformational. Now, you've expressed it in quite an American, if you like, constitutional way, that that immediately raises issues about checks and balances. Well, you guys forgot to write yours down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and look how well off we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but could it also be seen that it's actually something more structural about the actual communications itself, that somehow um, the, 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 the joys of the internet and providing you know, collective ways of working are actually scaled better at uh, local or specific mm. areas and that were never really meant to replace governance? Well, I, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in terms of how much or how little effect in a way because the effect is clearly still growing. Um, you know, as I was, uh, we, we, were, we were talking backstage a little bit and I was, I was saying how, how remarkable it is that the Sellafield, uh, the Sellafield workers may have a wildcat strike which they can now organize themselves, right? And the, a union has always been able to offer both positive and negative promises to a business, which is uh, we can say that we will, you know, we will do these kinds of things if you sign the contract, and we can also say we won't strike. And the workers are now potentially taking away the ability of the union to make any kind of negative promise at all. Because if the union says we won't strike and the workers say, you know what, we can organize a strike on our own, that's a, that's a fairly profound transformation. So I, I think that every place where groups of individuals are, have, have been contending through institutional interfaces, gonna, there's going to be some change. Um, what I think, I, so I, I think it's less an issue of scale, although the question of local is quite an interesting one, than a question of legitimacy. Um, the, the baseline legitimacy, the thing that makes everything else legitimate is the franchise, right? One person equals one vote. And when we have an election and we count the votes, it puts people in office who, if they don't break the law, their decisions are assumed to be legitimate on our behalf. And all of the other legitimacy connected to the government comes from that. Um, we've got an interesting thing in the states right now. There was a Senate campaign that was separated by a few dozen votes between Norm Coleman and Al Franken. Um, Coleman is the Republican. Franken, you may know because he was, he was previously a comedian. Um, he may yet be a comedian now that it looks like he's headed to the Senate, but he was previously professionally a comedian. Uh, and it became clear, right, days after the election, that the margin of error uh, was larger than the margin of victory, that there, there was no winner, and there was no way to decide a winner. Right? And at that moment, the low-cost choice would have been to flip a coin and send whoever got heads to the Senate, because it would have been no different than any other outcome. And they didn't flip a coin. They have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars Counting the candidate spending, it may be in the millions by the time they're done. Because even though the answer is wrong, it has to be wrong and legitimate. Right? There is literally no way to say the voters prefer X over Y, but the process has to legitimate the outcome. No one would accept a coin flip senator. But they will accept an equally random outcome arrived at by democratic means. Right? We don't have anything like that. We don't have a conception of identity that lets us say all and only the people affected weighed in, and each person weighed in one and only one time. 
And until we have that, um, the basic mechanisms of democracy with franchise citizenship and identity all bundled up in there, um, we're not going to be able to have any kind of trivial porting of democratic goals into, into the online Great. So what we'll do, I think, is um, we've got a reasonable amount of time, but I think to, because I imagine there's going to be quite a lot of questions, we'll take, let's take two at a time, and we'll start in sort of geographic ease down the front here, and then should we take, if you then give this guy here the microphone to go as well. Uh, thanks, Clay. You've talked at a, an incredibly high level, China, America, Obama, um, and Charlie tried to bring you down to sort of mucky local level, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try again because that's where the fascinating action is. What we're seeing in communities, and I run a series of community websites in North London in a place called King's Cross, are um, citizens who can write and can hit the enter key can now publish extremely effectively without the need for an industrial newspaper publishing machine behind them. Um, that's starting, they're only just starting to have some implications for the local press. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. And this is a quick two-parter. You touched on Tom Watson's report right at the beginning, uh, and I'll declare an interest in that. I helped him write it. Oh, I just wondered if you had any hints and tips for us while that report's still in beta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just think about Mission Impossible for a second. Yeah, let's take, right. this, let's oh, take right. the second yeah, no question indeed. as well. Um, okay, thanks, uh, Clay. Um, really, it was, uh, I wanted to ask a question about how you saw, you were talking about how government and factual groups um, with things like change.gov, um, it's not really working at the moment because of the marijuana uh, case. But I was just thinking that what really worked for Obama before um, change.gov was he had a really interesting like brand truth. People, it was yes. simple, yes we can, and within that you had hope. And therefore it was easy for people to use the self-expression tools to articulate hope. And so Will I Am goes and articulates hope as yes we can the video. The problem is, is after he comes into power, he suddenly loses his, his brand truth hope. He needs, for, for those people to use the self-expression tool, change.gov, they need to, he needs to put a, um, a, a brand value. So he needs to say economic crisis. Change.gov, what is change.gov as economic crisis? And then they'll have a, a viewpoint to, to change on. So he still needs, to, so government, I think, still needs to provide the brand truth, as it were, in order for people to know what they express, to express about? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me work back. I'll take those in the, re in the reverse order. I, I, you can argue with, uh, so, so first of all, I think it's absolutely the case that uh, Obama benefited from not just having a clear and consistent message, but by having that message be the 21st century equivalent of motherhood and apple pie. And the danger, in a way, the, the danger in making specific policy statements, um, Obama ran even the primary campaign as if it was the general campaign, which is to say he, he understood from the moment he stepped in front of a microphone or a camera that anything he said to anyone anywhere, he was saying to everybody all the time. McCain did not understand that, and videos were going up on YouTube of him saying crazily contradictory things, just two clips side by side, because he was still in the mode of say one thing to the car workers in Ann Arbor and another thing to the peanut farmers in Georgia. Um, we've, had, we've had examples of good political outcomes as with the, the defenestration of the, of the racist uh, Speaker of the House in 2002, Trent Lott, who had gone and praised a, a, a praised a segregationist at, at his 100th birthday party. Um, precisely because Lott had not yet understood that you couldn't get away with saying different things to different groups. 
the other hand, clarity takes a hit, right? Clarity of purpose takes a hit. Um, this is as much as anything a bug in the Constitution, which is to say our, our president, the role of our president, is too charismatic relative to the prime minister. There's a, there's a whole literature on the strange case that is the American Constitution because we didn't have a lot of good examples to learn from, and, and not having a prime minister has, has, has damaged us in some cases. So it's certainly possible to object that the, the, the Office of the President sorts for charisma, which it, which it clearly does. Um, but that's always been the case. It's been the case in television, right, with the famous Nixon-Kennedy debate where Kennedy looked great and Nixon not so great. Uh, uh, or in retrospect, either. But um, I think I think the thing you said about government being the locus of what's promised is the huge potential for transformation here. Um, a former student of mine, Matt Burton, wrote an, a, a wonderful essay called "Help the Man," uh, saying essentially, "I was a civil servant. He'd worked in the intelligence community, and I'm writing to the tech and geek community, which is his." his to say it's not just about politics, it's about governance. Everything you think of as government is actually done by permanent civil servants, not by politicians changing hands. And one of the open questions in the Obama administration is whether or not he will be able to transform the civil service into something that's both more responsive and also more legitimated in the, in the eyes of the voters. Um, I'm not going to handicap that work but I, I, I did spend some time with the transition team at least talking about the design principles that would go into such a thing. So I'll, I'll say that I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that they'll try. Um, I'm, I'm whatever the next dial down from cautiously optimistic is that they'll succeed. But I think your, I think your identification of the, of the issue is exactly, exactly the right one. Um, to, to the question of locality in newspapers, um, God, where do you start? It's really, um, the problem newspapers are in are, in a way, so much of their own making, it's hard to show an ounce of pity, um, <laughs> frankly. Uh, you know, Brad Templeton launched Clarinet in 1988, so there has been for 20 years practical on-the-ground electronic dissemination news. I was having conversations with a guy from the New York Times in 93 who told me the story of people leaking Dave Barry's column onto Usenet. This is before the, the, the web even existed. Leaking Dave Barry's column onto Usenet. And the, the Florida paper that employed Barry sent, you know, crack electronic investigators to find this mal, you know, malfeasant uh, actor. And it turned out to be a 14-year-old kid who loved Dave Barry so much that he just wanted everybody to read. Right? When your supporters are destroying your business model, right? And this is 93. So... In a way, like the banks, the newspapers kind of have us hostage, which is, I don't really care about the movie reviewers. It's, it's, it's hard to get worked up about the fashion column, but the people who go down to city government again today, just to take a look and see if, if, if something's going wrong, the loss of that function is pretty profound. Um, I like bloggers as much as the next guy, as you might imagine. But I am skeptical that without some higher degree of social coordination, that a loose collection of bloggers, even ones who can write well, will be able to pay enough attention to what's going on uh, at the local level to keep city councils from descending into corruption. And that, I mean, I think of all the challenges posed by the transition from old media models to new media models, I think that's I think that's the big one. Because 
Um, I mean, journalists are kind of like kept women, right? They, they never even knew there was a business model, right? No one ever told them, right? And so all of a sudden they're finding out, you know, revenues have to exceed expenses, right? And that has to happen every year. I mean, the kind of outrage you hear from, from, from reporters suggests that they haven't really thought through the business they're in in part because the separation from, from between advertisers and, and reporters has been so extreme. But their function has always been subsidized. It just used to be, right, that it was Marks and Spencers who was subsidizing the people who were going out and checking out the city council. You know, why was Marks and Spencers doing this? They didn't really care about the city council. It was just the bribe they had to pay to get their ads in the paper. And with that gone, we have to find another way to subsidize journalism. Journalism has never paid for itself. And the illusion that it did, being touted by newspapers, is because they don't want to call too much attention to the, to the brokenness of the current business model. But journalism is always subsidized. And if it's not going to be Marks and Spencer, who's it going to be? Um, it's historically been hard for it to be us, because we've never been very fast to reach for our wallets for, for uh, content online. Uh, I think uh, it'll be more comfortable here, but in the US, we're moving towards a much more vigorous nonprofit world because for-profit journalism is just, you know, it's, it's, it's the canary in the coal mine. But um, I don't think that the gap between what the newspapers are going to leave and what the bloggers are going to pick up can be filled by the bloggers alone. And I think that the real work is around social models that coordinate bloggers, that get people to perform different functions. I'll report, but you write and publish, or I've got this piece of knowledge, who's got something else? Because unless you have something that works a little bit like a newsroom, I just I don't think you can get there. You don't want to talk about Tom Watson? <coughs> uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll come back on I'm that. not sure I have anything smart enough to say to, no. to merit being on a microphone about that. Not now, anyway. Let's take a couple more. And let's just work our way back along the back here. So if we can take this, this guy right in the middle in the blue. You get the microphone to this guy. And if you could give into the stripy brown jumper. They're back a bit. Stripe, stripy brown jumper there. Whoever gets the microphone talks first. You, please. Hi, Clay. Um, I read your book last year. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks very much. Um, but the, there's two. There's a question that I, um, came up. There's a question that came up last year in one of the reviews I read about your book. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about it now. So I guess this is a two-part question. On one hand, I've um, I've recently joined an online community which is trying to build um, to crowdsource a sports car. It's called Project Split Wheel. Um, Split Wheel. Split Wheel. Yes. Um, and I have my doubts about. Um, I'm 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 happy to be proven wrong, but I have my doubts about how th how this this per this model of people coming together and and driving things in a certain direction can actually end in something tangible and useful. Something that mm -hmm. I'm I'm not sure how. I don't see how this can happen. The second part of my question is, um, I believe that this this model is viable and that it will happen and that it will make a difference, etc. And I'm quite passionate about it. But if if I devote my my professional life to doing something in this space, how would I or anybody else in that space appropriate some sort of returns? Because I still have to pay the rent. I still have mm. to buy food, etc. Um, yeah. Should we take that one? That take that one. That's a big question. Really, is is, is the the monetization right. or the paying the rent issue. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll say in terms in terms of tangibility, um, you know, I've I've, I've been I'm, I'm I'm working on another um, I'm working on another book, and and it's about it's about generosity and communal communal generosity, and I've been doing some reading on the invisible college, right? On the idea uh, when I mean the the, the birth.
dearth of science in the UK around this group of people who were all communicating with one another about how this should be done. It's clear how much of the birth of science wasn't just, we've got telescopes and microscopes, we've got the idea of experiments. It was also about a cultural shift, which is we all agree that we're going to share each other's stuff, right? So they had this great screed against the alchemists, right? And their criticism of the alchemists wasn't that they failed to turn lead into gold, it was that they failed to do so informatively. So no one knew why it didn't work. So uh, look for places where people are bootstrapping culture. So, so your first observation about you're skeptical that this can work, um, look, at, look, look through Instructables, look through make.com, you'll see lots of places where people are creating tangible objects. The question I think isn't, can groups create tangible objects? The answer is yes. The question is, can it get to a car yet? And there may very well be reasons there why the answer is no. But um, it's more this year than last year, and it's going to be more next year than this year. So I, I'd rephrase the question, when is it going to get to be a car? Um, in terms of money, money is so, uh, is so interesting because it turns out that motivation isn't like a, um, it isn't like a thermometer. There's more and less, right? Uh, there's a guy, Ed Desi, who uh, in, the, in the 1970s went around studying um, students putting together these cubic puzzles, right? You can take these cubes, it's called Soma, you can take them apart and make them in different shapes. And he would bring groups of students in and he'd say, right, here's this puzzle, we want to see how, you know, how, how good you do. We want to see how, how quickly you can put these puzzles together into different shapes. And then he'd observe them and take notes and say thank you very much. And he brought another group of students in and he said, we'll pay you for every shape you make, right? Just, you know, go as quickly as you can, make the, you know, make the shapes that you find interesting. And the students didn't understand that that wasn't the experiment. The experiment was he would then say to them at the end of, of these sessions, oh, I, I got to go enter some data on the computer. He'd leave the room for exactly eight minutes and watch them through a one-way mirror. The students who'd been told, we just want to see how well you can do, kept playing with the puzzle. Right? Oh, maybe I can make another one. Oh, I almost got that one. The students who'd been paid, the minute that guy was out of the room, they're like, <laughs> you know, leafing through the New Yorker, looking out the window. So the strange thing about money is it's not actually the universal motivator people have thought. No, 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 no. Even if you have to pay rent. I'm not saying live as the lilies of the field. I'm saying the link between solving the grocery shortage problem and doing what you love to do isn't, in fact, linear. Um, and that there are places where money actually worsens the transaction. Right? If you have a nice date, it's acceptable to send flowers the next day. It is not acceptable to send the amount of money the flowers would have cost. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's not just because money's more, that's not just despite the fact that money's more useful than flowers, that's because money's more useful than flowers. So the question I think you have to ask in terms of professional, your, your question about professional development and remuneration is, uh, is there some value you can create so large that you can reappropriate a piece of it? There are ways and ways of doing this. There are places that sell uh, installation and service, right, the Red Hat model. There are places, Tim O'Reilly has often said, create more value than you capture, right? There are places that sell uh, essentially short-term access to high-value knowledge, which will eventually leak out into the whole culture and become, you know, widely understood. But in the gap between I need to know this right now and I need to know this someday, people will pay for it, right? 
can you get people to pay to be beta testers? Can you get people to pay to understand what you're doing, not just in terms of a product, but in terms of a process? Uh, I don't know enough about the split wheel project to say which of those might work. Uh, but I do know that there's, there, there's no, there's no, this, this isn't a transi transition from business model A to business model B. It's a transition from business model A to business models B to Z, which is to say there are lots and lots and lots of ways to do this. From pure user subsidy, I'm doing this for the love of the thing, to this is absolutely top secret and only people who pay can see it up until the point I'm ready to release it to the public. Um, MySQL has done parallel development. They, if you want to use it for commerce, they charge. If you want to use it free, you can use it free. But you can't, you can't use it free if it's for commercial work. Um, it, I mean, it occurs to me, it would, it would be an enormous service to simply have a 30-chapter book with one non-traditional business model per chapter because um, the number of people with your question is large and growing, but the number of answers is also large and growing. And I think matching those two things is, uh, is the art. Um, it, it's, it's not the case that no one will get paid for this. Plainly, people are make their making their living on it now. But it is the case that the old, purely transactional model is one of the hardest to support. Okay. Great. Let's take your question there. Thanks for that, Clay. Uh, we've seen the way the new rules of new media have changed campaigning. Uh, I was wondering how you think it's going to change uh, the way democracies are run. And if you were sort of Obama or his chief strategist, um, how would you go about using new media tools to, to restructure participative democracy? If, if, if I was doing this, um, and the danger of all if I were Pope answers is that I don't, I don't have any constructive checks and balances on my, on my ideas, but if I were doing this, I would actually not be concentrating right now on um, the kind of large legitimating moves for wisdom of crowd stuff, precisely because of the, the hijack problem. Um, because in a way, even with new tools, small, tightly interested groups have a way of throwing issues higher up the charts than large groups that, that share an issue but, but aren't as organized. Um, I'd be worrying instead about how to get good ideas out of small groups. Right? If you want to know where really interesting, useful ideas are going to come from, don't look at crowds and don't look at individual geniuses. Look at small groups of smart people arguing with each other. Because historically, that's been a big source of change, whether you're talking about the Invisible College or, or, or the French Impressions. Right? And Instead of having government scale or social scale initiatives kind of have your say stuff. And there, in fact, there's a, there's a fantastic negative case in, in the, the, the beautiful and doomed Up My Street, which launched uh, late 90s, early, early 2000s, which was local, I mean, to the local issue again, postcode level conversations, right? Anonymous postcode level conversations among Britons. You can guess where that the anti-Pakistani ranch started first crack out of the box, and they realized we don't have any way to control this. This isn't what we meant. We meant civic engagement. We didn't mean racist ranting, but we don't have any way to control it. And it, it just it died. Um, those problems are hard, bordering on intractable. Um, even, even Wikipedia, easily the most successful large-scale contributory project, wrestles with that stuff daily. 
I'd be worrying a lot more about finding ways of putting small groups of people who share some bit of outlook, right? Every, every you know, government office in, in the federal government has nominally an ombudsman, right? Someone who is responsible for looking out for the public interest, right? If those people aren't part of a community of practice, some kind of sharing group, I'd be working overtime to let them start working with each other and share what they know. Because I, I don't think, I don't think partly the society, but much more to the point, I don't think the technology is ready for massive legitimating moves of unstructured participation across the largest uh, audience. That's the first time I've said that in public. Um, it makes me sad in a way because I, I have for years believed that. And now I find myself at this moment saying, you know, if it's all a bunch of potheads trying to game the system, I'm less interested than I was even, even six months ago. So I think, I think it's really about generating good ideas from small groups. Th that, that, is, that is what I'd focus on more than grand promises, which will be accompanied, sadly, by uh, grand setbacks sometime, you know, sometime in the next four years. He's, He's good, but he's not God, and and we're going to be disappointed. And it'll be an interesting moment to see what happens when that uh, when that disappointment comes. Yeah, he's good. He's not God, but little known fact, he is he is a hammer. Um, now, lady here, and I'm going to take a couple up the top. So if you want to go first, and then we'll okay. take a couple up there. Um, the guy there, and the other guy at the very back as well. Sorry, after you. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Karen Robinson. I actually was a regional field director on the Obama campaign working with Americans abroad. I had six countries we were working with here. So I had the chance to use some of the tools that you're talking about um, in that way. And um, previous to joining the campaign, I, I always had this running battle in any organization that I worked in about these issues and whether they were technology or whether they were communications. And I would kick and scream and say, no, take it out of the technology people and give it to the communications people and so forth. The Obama campaign actually structured themselves in a third way, which I hadn't seen before, which was that the new media people were in a separate new media team equal to and separate from the communications and the technology teams. And it started me thinking about other organizations outside of the realm of campaigning, including corporations and things, which will never be able to control, as you say, these, these phenomena, but have a need to monitor them, to manage them to some extent, to have some sort of role in it, and how we thought structurally that might ultimately wind up working. Um, one of one of three business models, technology, communications, or thing new. Mm -hmm. um, and any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the I mean, first of all, the um, there's always there's always a danger in doing what we were doing, which is extrapolating from single cases in which there were so many variables at play. Um, I think, you know, Macon Phillips, who is the head of the the, the new media stuff. Um, is making is, is is so extraordinary in a way wherever and 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 Joe Rosper in fact who was the person who put up the the Obama reply that those people are so extraordinary that I think they would have done pretty well <laughs> wherever wherever they were so it's not the case that if you have structure X you get you get result Y um, that having been said what I've observed with other institutions struggling with with new media is that at some point they get sick of all the whining from the new media people and they put them into a new media department so they can ignore them all at once rather than having to ignore each of them in their own individual individual silos. And and then one of two things happen. Either they're kind of hived off and let, you know, set out to sea, as is happening in, in, in many US magazines right now, 
Or they do something really interesting and the main organization says, oh my goodness, this is a core function, we have to reintegrate them. And I think what the Obama campaign got exactly right is the traditional people have to do what they've always done because there's no, there's no time to spin this up, right? We've got, we've got 22 months or whatever. We know how grand campaigns are run. Let them do their thing. Um, and then they set up uh, the new media group on the side. I, I, it, it, it's a good way to do it if you're willing to reintegrate when the new media department gets, you know, internalizes enough of its, um, internalizes enough of its, uh, its own goals. In fact, I just saw yesterday, I was visiting my friend Emily Bell at The Guardian, who's their, who's their web person and, and uh, a genius. And she is the kind of person who thinks through not just general, like, okay, now it's time to slam the newsroom and the, and the new media room together. She had a desk design that has scallops in it. So the web team can sit together and the traditional news team can sit together, but they can all see each other and talk to each other. Like she thought through the seating arrangements that would create the best medium between your separate and your mixed and give them a bit of both. Now whether it works or not, I don't know, but that, that attention to detail um, is I think the key because you can, you can be too fast and you can be too slow, you can be too separate and you can be too together. And I think in times of transition, it's so much of it's around kind of the monthly or even weekly monitoring of where are we now, which the Obama campaign clearly did a masterful job of. Um, I remember when they launched, something like, you launched something like 125,000 my Barack Obama groups to start dealing with the get out the vote game. And I thought, oh yeah, this is what Howard Dean never did. Right? He never worked on the getting out the vote piece, worked on fundraising. Um, so the, I guess the sad news is there's no, there's no replacement within an organization for um, continually retaking the temperature of the place. Because if you go too fast, you get culture clash. If you go too slow, smart people split for someplace else where they can get more done. Uh, the advantage of campaigns is it's all it's all happening at a fixed speed that nobody can control, right? There's no there's no administrators imperative to say, well, I just want to sit on this for a week or two. It's like mm, elections next Tuesday. Um, for people who don't have that goal, maybe finding things where there's deadlines that have the same forcing function and and using those as experimental platforms might be might be a good idea. That's a good point. You work you work with both commercial and you know public organizations. You know, does the commercial imperative concentrate minds, or do you think it distorts the um, the sort of participatory process? Well, be both. I mean, it's you, you know, it's it's uh, <coughs> in the commercial world, the concern is often how do we raise revenues to support our current cost structure, rather than the question they should be asking, which is how do we lower our cost to meet where the web is today. And one of the reasons startups have a natural edge over existing companies is. Startups start low cost, so they never have to have that conversation. Um, public institutions have a culture that is at least more nominally fitted to the public good, given that it's generally in their charter. Um, on the other hand, if they are in the position to uh, benefit from hoarding information, they've got less punishment from the market. So I guess what I'd say is you, there are different kinds of roadblocks. Um, the, the public institutions tend to do to work in small steps with big press releases. The commercial institutions tend to 
wait until it's panic time and then suddenly kick into high gear? I mean, that's what's going on with the newspapers now, right, is, is they've decided that 2009 is the, is the year to introduce us to the idea that the Internet may be trouble for newspapers. <laughs> you know, I, uh, so it, it's, it's just it's different classes of problems. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't handicap one over the other except to say if you've, got, if you've got the culture that can deal with your class of problem, you're going to be better off than if you don't, whether you're, you're public or private. Great. Let's take those two questions at the top. Let's take them together. So it was you yeah. and then the other chart. Clay, I wonder to what extent you think that in the democratic context, oh, the democratic context, the um, organizational tools are inherently the tools of opposition, so that most of the examples that we cite are about people mobilizing against something. And the Obama campaign, without taking away from the positives, was drawing on a very deep well of rather negative feeling about the incumbent of the White House uh, previously. If that's the case, then, it would suggest that Obama's best hope of maintaining a vibrant community will be to mo motivate it against Congress uh, rather than to sell the government. Yeah. He can take advantage of the separation of powers uh, to keep people lively and campaigning. That is, that is such Hold a... That. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where was the other one? Oh, there you go. Go on. Um, hi, Clay. Um, I would kind of like to um, challenge your statement that um, this kind of technology um, isn't going to be suitable for this kind of collaboration on a, on a mass scale for, for decision-making. Um, I think um, it goes back to the question of legitimacy. So um, maybe 15 years ago, search engines versus um, search engine kind of marketers was, was basically a bunch of potheads trying to um, game the system. Um, so, so the way to measure legitimacy wasn't I put these things in the title of my website, um, but it's kind of been revealed that the legitimacy comes from websites linking to one another. So that, that kind of method or, or proxy for legitimacy was discovered, um, could there be another proxy for legitimacy that we could yeah. use in these systems? Yeah. That's, yeah. Again, I'll, 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 I'll work back, back to front, as it were. Um, yeah, the, the, the search, engine, search engine market and the rise of algorithms like PageRank, which is famous at the Google, uh, the Google algorithm developed by, by uh, Larry and Sergey. Um, Certainly uncovered the hidden the hidden structure that makes that uh, makes Google work. It makes I mean we, we kind of forget this now, but Google saved the web. It, it was it was choking on its own waste by '98. If you did a search in Yahoo, um, it was it was it was it was all but useless. Uh, so I guess the question is, and I don't know the answer to this. I guess the question is, is the democratic process so inherently tied to voting? that without an identity framework that lets us do the sort of one and only one mapping, people won't regard it as legitimate, even if there's an algorithm that works. Or is there another scent of decision-making, as it were, um, something closer to the wiki model, which is to say, essentially, what you're looking at is the last thing anybody bothered to disagree about. Uh, but we regard that as legitimate in the, in the case of Wikipedia. Um, that's a really good question. I guess I would say that the larger the scale, uh, I mean, voting, voting is a response to, to the scaling problem, right? If you want to go to a movie with one other person, uh, you know, you can work out your preferences. Well, I really hate Kevin Costner and I want to go to someplace near work or whatever. If you've got to go to a movie with 30 other people, right, just take a vote. Like, you can't, you can't do it. You can't talk your way out of, that, out of that problem. So voting is a response to scale, and I guess I'd say... 
because because groups are conservative, right? Because just getting a group to do anything is such a hard activity that the highly conserved piece is the way that group comes comes to a decision. Uh, my guess is that the experiments for the um, the sense of legitimacy, as it were, an algorithm that legitimates a group outcome, are probably going to, if they show up, they will probably show up in smaller groups. I'm skeptical that at the national level, even if they worked, they would be regarded as legitimate at first. And I'm going to hypothesize, uh, again, now in the realm of pure speculation, that if smaller groups, groups of, of hundreds or thousands, work this out, then groups of tens of thousands and later hundreds of thousands might be willing to try it. But I, I, I don't think, um, I'm not long-term pessimistic about this, but I'm, I'm short-term pessimistic that between the identity frameworks that we have online and the, the legitimacy required by voting, and it's been really instructive to watch all of this taxpayer money spent on this Senate race to, to, to zero mathematical effect, but to critical democratic effect. Um, I'm skeptical that a tool is going to overcome, overcome that hurdle, or, or at least do so quickly. Um, but the much more interesting part of your question is, are there other signs of legitimate decision making besides voting that will work the way PageRank worked? Um, don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, opposition. To the question of opposition, yeah. Um, I was remembering, as you, were, as you were asking that question, that's such a good question, I was remembering um, Wilfred Bion, who was a, a psychotherapist who pioneered group uh, group psychotherapy uh, for groups of neurotics. So the, the applicability to the internet is fairly obvious, I think. <laughs> and one of the things he said was that the, nothing solidifies a group faster than an external threat. And groups that don't have external threats gravitate to paranoids as their leaders because those people can always find one. <laughs> and so... Uh, I was, I was re recalling this conversation. Back in 2003 and 2004, all of the hand-wringing in the weblog world was, why, why is the internet inherently beneficial to conservatives? Right? The concern was that the war bloggers, and this, is a, this is in a US context, that the war bloggers, the people making a, a, a bumptious and, and vigorous case for pros the prosecution of the Iraq war, uh, that those people were absolutely dominating the critical discourse, that when reporters turned to the blogosphere, it was little green footballs or, or uh, Instapundit or whatever, these, these, these various mainly libertarian um, right-wing bloggers. And by 2007, the anguish was on the other side, which is the Republicans were saying, why is Obama um, succeeding so dramatically with this stuff when McCain is not? And, and, and I think there's something about um, the... The rhetorical sharpness of people trying to push an unfamiliar idea into a culture is heightened, right? People who are just repeating the status quo are operating at disadvantage compared to people who are trying to introduce a new idea in this medium. Um, and the other reason I was laughing is that Obama is about to do something uh, exactly like what you just said, which is that he's about to open a five-day window on legislation between when it reaches his desk and when it signs it. Now clearly, right, the legislation should be, the, the transparency around legislation should be on the part of the legislature. 
but it is an ancient media pattern that when new media comes along, the executive embraces it and the legislative body avoids it. So as FDR was doing his, his uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our president, was, was doing his radio speeches, his fireside chats, Congress was at the same time passing laws forbidding the use of radio to cover congressional hearings. So we have the same situation now vis-a-vis -vis the internet, which is transparency. The executive is embracing the legislative body has roughly the relationship to transparency that which is due to water. And so Obama, and it's a high-risk move, what Obama's doing is exposing the legislation after it's been written but before he signed it. And so if there is a bridge to nowhere, our famous example of a pork barrel project that didn't need to happen uh, but was funded because of a, it, was a, it was a powerful senator, that stuff is going to be sitting out there for public critique for five days. And it's pretty clear that what Obama is betting on is that the outrage of the citizens vis-a-vis -vis the conduct of Congress will be heightened by exposure during that window. Now, the risk, right, is that Americans not so smart. I mean, you may have seen the league tables, right? We're, we're, we're historically low on understanding even how our own political system works. So the risk is that, in fact, Obama will get the blowback for the pork because he signs the bills. Because by the time a bill's arrived at the president's desk, he's actually already minded to sign it, right? The White House wouldn't be doing their job if he didn't understand what was coming. So there is, in fact, a very high-stakes game that's about to take place that's in, in, exactly the, in exactly the zone you hypothesized. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Great. Okay, what I'm going to do is, but time is against the sun. Take three questions very, very quickly. Your problem uh, isn't the questions; it's my answers are not short. I, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> if you you're very give, give this guy at the, the front the microphone to ask one, and then if you can give him one. Let's see there. Have we got any other mic? If you could give, not unique. Uh, give this guy in the right in the middle here, because we're not coming down the front here. The microphone as well. So far away, whoever got one first. Shall I, shall I start? Yeah, please. Over here. Clay. Oh, yeah, Russell. Um, I, I guess this goes to the legitimacy thing, but, but what do you think the difference is between the mer medical marijuana thing getting to the top of change.gov and what my society did to MPs' expenses, transparency? Because in one case, it's like a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands. On the other case, on the other side, it's like transparency geeks connected, and I don't know where the legitimacy of, it, of either comes from, or how you determine yeah, yeah, yeah. that. Possibly right. there's a kind of overlap somewhere. Right. I don't know. Right. But, yeah. um, do you got a microphone? You ask a question. Um, I've got two questions. Has the success of I Apple's um, store um, changed your view on micropayments? No, we don't. And the second one is. Surely the problem is, is that who cares wins? At the moment, because the barrier of entry is so low, anyone who cares about anything can obviously um, overload, overload the, the forum, mm. basically. Um, surely wouldn't a portable, portable, portable reputation yes, system help? Okay, similar question, yeah. actually. Maybe. Who is up there? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I, I was just thinking about your, uh, the medical marijuana I issue, and I was thinking that it, that seemed more just a case of motivation, going back to your puzzle example. So people were offered attention in return for saying what they wanted, and, and they abused it just because they wanted attention. And your kind of idea of checks and balances, I just wanted to ask you about that, because it seemed that you were um, sort of 
hinting at the idea of a sort of social contract online. So you have to <laughs> give up some sort of freedom in return to protection from abuse. And I just wondered if, you know, talking about how bloggers would act. So if bloggers had, you know, they'd listened to what bloggers were saying, they wanted to change. They all have a reputation to manage. They're not anonymous, as the people on change.gov were. So if we get to the point where everybody's managing an online identity in one way or another, Perhaps there's more responsibility. I wonder if you think that could be the checks and balance. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, in fact, I'll, 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 I'll talk about these two questions together, but they're at least not the microphone piece, but the reputation piece. Um, the, the, the thing that the, the, the identity framework that we have in the real world um, gives us is the ability to have one and only one metrics for citizen participation and anonymity. And that's turned out to be those two things have been turned out to be hard to link together uh, online. Um, I do absolutely think that posting under your real name makes a huge difference. And one of the things, the history of Wikipedia, interestingly, right, as, as, as people come in and do the kind of system gaming um, around, I'm sorry, around, around your notion of the, the, the abusive change I got, um, the history of Wikipedia is giving tools to people who care about Wikipedia as a whole to defend Wikipedia against people who care only about their own, their own interests. And those tools have almost all revolved around identity in one way or another. Uh, we haven't seen you around these parts before, you're not logged in, you haven't been here for a month, you don't have a good history, right? And so the, the internal defenses from some Wikipedians against other Wikipedians, exactly a social contract, has turned out to be much more important than the defense of Wikipedia users versus outside, malign outside forces as a whole. Um, that is in a microcosm, but in a much more significant way, both because of the problems and the outcomes, the problem faced by democracy. Um, I was very optimistic about OpenID, uh, which, is a, which is a framework for managing a one and only one identity on the internet. And then I went uh, to the O'Reilly site. Uh, Tim O'Reilly is a publisher of, of technical books and, and one of the best. In fact, I would say the best. It's the, the only class of books that I'll buy sight unseen if I know O'Reilly's published. And I went to sign up on the O'Reilly site. They said, we take OpenID. I tried to sign in with my OpenID. They said, oh, no, you have to give us your own login first, and then we'll re-recognize you with OpenID. And I thought, the, 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 right now, the business model online is, is almost custom-built to destroy a general purpose identity framework. So although we have a working example of one, the forces pushing against open ID, and therefore I think the portable reputation market, the, the, the idea that where I go my reputation precedes me wherever I go, that both of those things are now closer to being technologically instantiated than culturally instantiated, and cultural change takes a long time. Um, so that's, that's in a way the source of my pessimism. Um, to, to, the, to, the, to the point that right there, abusing change.gov for some kind of public attention, I'm not exactly sure I'd call it abuse because I think the people throwing that thing up the church genuinely do believe that the United States would be a better or at least happier place if medical marijuana, medical marijuana were legalized nationwide. Um, and so it's not, it's not the same as you know, mandating that everyone be given a pony, which would on some level be abuse. Um, and drawing those lines, like where does the abuse, where do you even define the category of abuse as starting as different from legitimate participation, is itself such a thorny question that it pushes back to this, to this constitutional issue. 
Um, a, a minor note on micropayments. I haven't, I haven't changed my, my mind on micropayments because what I've always said is micropayments, the idea of being um, such small payments that the payer doesn't notice but the, but the recipient reaps a benefit. Um, conversation around micropayments always show up like vultures when a business model is about to expire. So the first time uh, it happened, it was around webzines in the middle of the 90s. Next time it happened, it was around, uh, it was around uh, blogs. And this time, it's around newspapers. Uh, the, the thing that Apple has in iTunes and that, that the phones have in the ringtone market is they have monopoly control. Right? Uh, Apple could make you pay in Bing cherries if they wanted to. They, 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 because they have governments defending, um, defending them against competition in a way, we don't yet know what a music market looks like that's completely open and has compulsory licensing. Uh, but given that even Apple has dropped DRM, I think we're going to start to see people experimenting with, with, with alternate models. But historically, micropayments are impossible to support in a competitive market because people hate them so much. And so the fantasy that micropayments will save you is in a way the fantasy that you will somehow become a monopoly and, and, and reassert pricing, pricing power over your customers. Um, you can only do that if the government is willing to intervene on your behalf, and since the government isn't going to uh, enforce copyright over news, I don't, I don't think it's going to work for newspapers. And in fact, I don't think it's going it's to work as a general case. Um, Russell, your question about, let me, let me, let me give this, this, this story. Um, the labor government enacted something which I think of, or I'm sorry, yes, enacted something which I think of as being like our Freedom of Information Act request, which is we're going to have a higher degree of exposure and transparency. And this included ministers' expenses. And then they quietly announced uh, on a, uh, a day when there was quite a bit of other news, oh, we're, we're actually not going to do that. Uh, and knowing that announcing they weren't going to do that on a day that we had a lot of other news, that they'd beaten the news cycle, right? We'd released this, other things were going on, nobody paid attention, we'll have this little vote on Thursday, it'll be a done deal. Uh, Steinberg and the My Society people uh, broke, broke the news cycle. Uh, they rebroadcast the news the next day, a slow news day, to the, to the chagrin of the labor government. Um, it was picked up by bloggers. It was tweeted all over the place. And suddenly, the desire to make a change without having the change be widely understood uh, was, was, was taken away. That helped. But the, the other thing that helped was that constituents were hearing. And, and, and Tom says it was to the 90th percentile of at least conservative members, where the Tory members were hearing from their constituents. Why, why are you doing this? To which the Tories turned around and said, why are we taking a bullet for labor? Right? Why are we getting blamed for something labor is doing? Why don't we get in front on this issue and pull out of this coalition? And that's what happened. Um, I think the, what, what Tom did was harder because it required more people and it required direct connection between the people and the members. If Tom had done everything he'd done, to, or and I say Tom, I'm saying Tom to mean you know the Crown, right? The, the the My Society group had done everything they'd done to break the back of the media cycle problem, but no one had cared, and no one had called their members. The vote would have happened anyway, and 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 Labor would have won that one. And it's exactly I think the difficulty of getting individuals in that many districts that creates some of the legitimation. But again, it's a spectrum. I don't want to suggest you know, St. Tom Steinberg and badchange.gov, but it, it, it is a harder problem to get individuals to contact members
than to get people who are logged in to go in and fill out a form and click submit. And it's exactly the difficulty of doing that that creates a higher cost and therefore more politically authentic signal uh, than, than is created here. Right? In 99% in of the cases, the Internet's good because it makes things easier. But in political communication, you want it to be a little bit of a hassle to take action. So that the, 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 the fact of taking action uh, almost guarantees some real fervor of the, of the participants. Well, listen, we've run out of time, but um, before we, we end, there's three quick commercials I want to, to, to make. One is to, um, if you're at all interested in uh, international coverage in UK public service broadcasting, as you should be, then uh, the copies of the Polis Report are next to Clay's book outside. Um, on February the 23rd, we're back in here for a Polis debate on financial journalism with people like Howard Davis and Evan Davis. And... The third commercial is if you would uh, like to uh, purchase uh, Clay's paperback of, of his book, what we're going to do is the book's out there. Clay's going to go out to the atrium around the corner from this uh, theatre uh, for a book signing. But it's been a fantastic evening. The, the questions have been outstanding. Yeah, so yeah. thank you all to you, but especially thanks to Clay. Thank you so much for being here.